verses 37 and 38, which we'll uh, spend our time tonight on those two passages, and then uh, we won't completely finish up verse 38, but as we begin our lesson tonight, if you had to uh, outline the, uh, the lesson, the sermon that Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, it basically would have two main points. What were the two main points that Peter emphasizes in his sermon here on the day of Pentecost? Number one is what? You killed him, Jesus, and God raised him. Point number one, you killed him. Number two, God raised him. And so... That's, that's the basics of what we have. Of course, there's a whole lot that's in there, and we're not going to go back over that tonight. But you killed him, and God raised him, and so that's what we're doing. And when they heard this, the Bible says, they were cut to the heart. And, and we spoke about that last time and talked about the, the fact that there were uh, many of the translations had a little bit different. King James said they were pricked in the heart. Uh, the New King James says they were cut to the heart. And the, uh, uh, I think it's the New American Standard says they are pierced to the heart. And so the word meant to pierce thoroughly, to agitate violently, uh, to pain the, uh, pain the mind sharply. And so our point was that as we look at these people who are listening to Peter on the day of Pentecost, it had a major effect on them. It elicited a response from them. Not just from the, from the words that they speak, but, but from the very inward parts of their being. They realized they had messed up big time. And so they're going to ask a question. And that's what we have here in verse 37 that we're going to talk about here more tonight. And we'll deal with it in, uh, in quite a bit of detail. Okay? So... What is the question that they ask? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? They're talking, the, the apostles have been preaching. If we, if we note here, as well as Peter, there's a large crowd there. We have the, the record of Peter's message that they are... Uh, giving Peter is giving the message that he is being directed by the Holy Spirit. The uh, other apostles are speaking by the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm certain that they were getting the same message no matter which one they were listening to. But they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? Now here are a couple of things that, that I want you to remember that will help you in your understanding, I think, and if you will remember these things, and when people talk to you about this passage of Scripture, you can help them in their understanding of it as well. Number one, by virtue of the fact that they ask the question, what shall we do? We're led to understand something. We're led to understand that these people believed what Peter said, right? If they didn't believe what he was saying... They would have contradicted him. They would have brought something else. But by virtue of the question that they asked, they believed what Peter was saying about this. Now, what was it that he had, what is it that he has said? They killed him. They killed him. God raised him. 
But who is he? Who is he? It's not just that they killed him and that God raised him, but God raised him to be what? Verse 36. The end of verse 36. This is, this is a special man. This is a special person. This is the God-man. This is the Son of God. And so God raised him to be the Lord and the Christ, the, the anointed one and, and the ruler, if you will. And so God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now, before asking the question, let me ask it this way, and we're sort of going at it in steps. What had they just done? What had they just done? Now, I've already talked about it a little bit, but what had they just done? We talked about the message, but what had they just done? When they... Well, they crucified Him, but I'm talking about particularly here on the day of Pentecost. When they heard this. When they heard this. What is the first step that when we're teaching people about how to be a Christian, what they need to do in order to be a Christian. You know, sometimes they, uh, there was one of the restoration preachers that actually was the one who came up with a five-finger thing, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. What's first on that list? They are to hear. People have to hear the Word of God, don't they, before they can do anything else. They can respond to it in any other way. Okay? So, as we think about that, one of the passages that we sometimes quote is from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. I'm not asking you to turn over there. I want you to quote it for me tonight. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. I'll get you started off. So, faith. There you go. I knew if I got you started, you'd say it. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, I just made the statement a moment ago. These men, the apostles, Peter and the rest of the apostles, they were speaking what? How were they speaking? What did, how did they know what to say? Inspired. Spirit was inspiring them as to what they were to say that day. And so the word was coming from where? Did Peter make it up? No, the word was coming from... God, Holy Spirit being part of the Godhead. And so they're speaking the Word of God. So faith comes by hearing. We must hear the Word of God. But what did they hear? Now understand, I, I, I told you the, the main points. We've talked about the main points. But what are the sub-points? If we're outlining this sermon, what are the, some of the sub-points? You killed him, God raised him, but what are some of the subpoints in, in between that? You killed him, Jesus was crucified, therefore he D-I-E-D, he died, he died. Jesus was also, according to what Peter's preaching here, what? He was also... Buried, right? You remember the part in that sermon about, okay, his body was not left 
to see corruption. Talks about David and his tomb being there even to this day. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And then what? Jesus was raised by God. And so as we look at it then, Jesus was crucified by you, he died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised by God. Somebody turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Read the first four verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Stop for, stop for just a second. Let me ask you a question. What did Paul preach to the Ephesians? I mean, to the Corinthians here? The gospel. Now he's going to tell us about the gospel, is he not? Okay, keep reading. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What did Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? Death, burial, resurrection. What is that? He preached the gospel on that day. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the first time the gospel was preached. The very first time the gospel was preached after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Peter is preaching the gospel. That's why we call it sometimes the first gospel sermon. He's preaching the gospel. And he's telling these folks what they need to know. Now somebody, by memory again, quote for me Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, go to all the world and do what? Preach what? Preach the gospel. In preaching the gospel, and of course there are other things that as we go through the book of Acts, we'll see are our, 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 our part of the preaching of Jesus, which is the preaching of the gospel. But the basics of that are what, uh, what Peter lays out for us here. You killed him and God raised him. He's killed, he's buried, and God raised him. Okay? And so he preaches the gospel. And now who is to hear that gospel? According to what Jesus said and Mark recorded for us there in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Do what? All creatures. The whole creation, as some translations say. And so these people had heard the gospel. All right, They heard the gospel on that day. But remember, I started out this point... By what? One of the things that we need to remember about these people is what? By virtue of the question that they ask, it shows us or we're led to believe or understand that these people believed what Peter was saying. And what did they believe? If they believed what Peter was saying, what had Peter said? Jesus is the Lord in Christ. And they believe that. Now, consider what I just said. 
one of the restoration preachers who, who helps us to, rem- to remember it. Okay? Plan of salvation, gospel plan of salvation, we'll see this repeat over and over again as we go through the book of Acts, is what? Number one, step one. Step two. What are, these? What are we doing? We are following right down the steps. They had heard and they believed, okay, and yet they asked a question. They heard it, they believed, and they said what? Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? This is the second point of our study tonight. By virtue of the question itself, we're led to understand that they considered and concluded that there was something that they should do. That was their obvious conclusion. Yes, they believe what he said, but their obvious conclusion is, there's something for me to do. I've got to be involved in this as well. Okay? Now, if the denominational preachers that we hear so often in our day and time are correct, Peter's answer should have been something like this. When they ask, what shall we do? Peter should have said, nothing. You're saved already. How? By faith alone. Because what were they they already? They were already believers in the sense that they heard and they... Ask, or, uh, you know, by virtue of the fact that they ask, it, it suggests that they're believers, they're believing already. Okay? Or they should have said, well, or Peter should have said, well, nothing. You've been saved by grace alone. And, and if you were to do something, then you'd be working on your salvation. And that's what the denominational world teaches, Right? You either saved by faith alone or you're saved by grace alone? Well, that was point number three on my... Yeah. <laughs> that, that was actually what... That's number three on my sheet right here. They should have said, if they're correct, pray this prayer. Which, where'd you find that at? Verse 3011. 30-11, that's about where it's at. First opinions, I think, 3011. And something like that. If they're right, why didn't Peter say that? They asked the question, what, what shall we do? They realized that there was something. Their, their, their reasoning said there's something that we must be involved in. Now, this is not a Greek class nor an English class, either one. But I, I just want us to observe, and I want you to listen, and I hope it will make sense to you. The word do there is a verb that is in the future active indicative mood. Future, meaning the future tense, typically expresses an undefined action which will take place sometime in the future. An example of this tense in English would be, he will run. In other words, they're wanting to know from this point in the future, what is it that we can do to make this right, to remedy the situation here? And so it's future, 
It's also active. The active voice indicates the subject is directly performing the act. In other words, the subject, the people, each individual, what can each one of us do? Not, you know, is there something left out that we can do? Each of us individually. And then it's in the indicative. The indicative mood simply affirms the reality of an action. The reality. And that's basic Greek language. The reality of something. It's not a theory of something, but it's me acting in a positive way. Okay? And you don't have to remember all of those things, but the language itself is telling us about these people. And the question they're asking, what can I do now? You know, not what's been done for me by God. What do I do? You know, give me the instruction so that I can, I can, I can perform whatever it is. That's what they're asking. They hadn't asked, what has God done for me or what is God going to do for me? these people realized that God had already done His part. Right? You killed Him. God raised Him. And God made Him Lord in Christ. God's already done His part. But the language itself, and that's the reason I said that, the language itself indicates that they wanted to know what is my part and what is going on. You see, they were active and guilty of crucifying the Son of God. That's the you killed him part. They were active and guilty in that. They realized that. They knew they'd had a part in that. Now, how could they be active in remedying their transgression? Turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 at verse number 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8. What does Paul tell us there? By grace you have been saved through faith. Now we could talk about grace tonight, define it. We could talk about faith tonight, define it. Charis and pistis, those are the two words. We could talk about those. But what is Paul's point? Where did the grace part come in? Who did that? You can't earn it, but who, who did the grace part? Who does the faith part? God has already done His part. What are these people asking? What shall we do? What's my part in this? I know I'm guilty. What is my part? They couldn't earn the salvation, but they still had something that they must do. Let me ask you a question tonight. Has God ever required men to do absolutely nothing. 
Can you think of a time when God required men to do absolutely nothing? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Closest thing I can think of is found in the book of Exodus chapter 14. And somebody read for us, please, Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Okay. The Lord will fight for you while you keep okay. Now, what are two things that we see there? They were to do what? First of all, not fear. Okay, not fear, but stand by. Stand by. Anybody have uh, English Standard says stand firm. Okay. Anybody have the King James or the New King James or the American Standard? Stand still. I'm not really having anything to do. I'm just standing still. Uh, look at verse 14. Okay? End of verse 14, what did he say? I'm, I, I'm to stand still and don't say anything. Because what's God going to do? He, he's going to work the salvation for them, isn't he? Okay? Y'all remember my original question? Has there ever been a time when man was required to do absolutely nothing by God? If you stop there, it would seem like, okay, they don't have any responsibility other than stand still and be quiet, right? But somebody please read verse 15. Do what? Go. Now what's in front of them? The Red Sea. What's going to happen? You, you, God, you mean you're going to march us right off in the sea? He said, stand still and, and be silent. What's God doing? His part. What, is he, what does He tell them to do? Now, did God make it possible for them to do their part? Because what did he do? Verse 16. What did he tell Moses to do? Stretch out your rod and do what? Open the sea up and the people could walk across in that muddy, nasty stuff. On dry, under the ocean? Under the sea, rather? The Red Sea? God did his part. Now, what if they, let me ask you, what if they just stood there? What if they heard that part, stand still and be quiet, but they refused to listen to the latter part? By the way, where did Pharaoh's army go? <laughs> right in after him. So if I'm standing there doing nothing, I'm not watching them just run off in the sea. What, what do you think they're going to do if I'm just standing there? They're going to run over me or they're going to use their spear or their sword on me. They had something to do, didn't they? Now, did they earn it? No, they walked across on dry land. 
God did his part. They're told to do their part. Now what happens when they get across? Egyptians are coming in, and what begins to happen? That old water begins to seep back down in that muddy uh, bottom of that sea, and their wheels get stuck, and they start to come off, and they want to turn around, but they can't because God tells Moses to do what? Stretch that rod back out there and put that sea back where it's supposed to be. And they saw what? The salvation of the Lord. Okay? And so, as we look at it now, y'all remember that because we're coming back to it in just a little while. Hope, well, probably won't get there tonight, but we'll come back to it next time. Okay? Y'all remember this, this particular thing here. Okay? Now, one of the things that, that really perturbs me is, is even Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. When, when in different situations of life, they seem to believe that they are to stand firm or stand still and be quiet and just let God do everything. Now, I asked the question, I said, has there ever been a time when God required man to do absolutely nothing? You know, there are Christians sometimes who, who say that, 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 that other Christians, they, they really shouldn't express their convictions in regard to things like politics even. We ought to just be still and let God sort it out. Right? Now, is God in control ultimately? Absolutely. But when God gives us an opportunity to act like He did the children of Israel, like He does with an election, and He allows us to listen to those who espouse either everything evil or at least one or more who espouse freedom to do what's right, you know what I'm convinced of? He expects us to move forward. He expects us to move forward. He expects us to act just as he does in every other area. Let me see if I can even make it more simple. I am standing smack in the middle of a busy railroad track. And I am praying with everything I've got, God save me from being run over by a train. Can God save me? Yeah, he's already done his part. He gave me enough sense to move my feet and get off the track, right? He expects me to do my part. He's not going to magically make that train, you know, disappear or make it so that there's no, uh, no substance or no mass to that metal and me just pass through it like we're going like a spirit. He expects me to do my part. He always does that. Always. Yeah. We are acting our part out. Okay, And so what does this have to do with what we're talking about here in the book of Acts? Chapter number 2. What's, re- what's true in the realm of politics or getting off the train track 
is also true in regard to our salvation. Because these people ask, what must, what shall we do? What shall we do? And so how did Peter answer? That's what we have in verse 38. Okay? So let's go to verse 38. Peter, Peter answers them. Okay? So Peter said to them, now Larry, if you'll flip, uh, change that one over there. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back and review just a second. These people had already done two things, as sometimes we talk about in regard to the plan of salvation. They had already heard, hadn't they? They had already believed, had they not? Now what does Paul, uh, uh, Peter tell them to do next? Repent. Repent. Hear, believe, repent. Okay? And so he tells them to repent. Okay? So, far too many folks in our day and time operate under the wrong assumption regarding repentance. Some believe that repentance is simply to change my mind about something. Okay? Some say, well, repentance is saying I'm sorry. I want you to observe tonight that these people had already changed their mind, their heart, and these people were already sorry, were they not? Because they were cut to the heart. And so repentance is more than simply changing my mind and saying I'm sorry. There's more to it than that. In the book of First, Second Corinthians chapter 7, at verse 10, for sake of time tonight, Paul writes and says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. These people were already grieved, but it produced a repentance that leads to salvation. That's what Peter's telling them here. Your mind has changed. You're sorry for what you've done. And so you must still repent. Now, what does repentance involve? Go real quick to the book of Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Somebody jump in there and read that real quick for us here. All right, point I, the point I want to make for sake of time, what did, what did Jesus tell his people? Bear fruits, what kind of fruits? Bear fruits in keeping with the repentance. Change your ways, change your life, change your actions. That's what repentance is. You change your mind. Yes, I'm not saying that the change of the mind is not part of it. I'm just saying these people had already done it, and yet they had not fully repented yet. Okay? 
So they're changing their mind, and they're also changing their actions as well. Look at John chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. John 8, verses 39 and 40. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, watch this next part. You would do the works, or would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? When God spoke, Abraham went. Abraham did. What he's telling them is that they are to work, they are to change their life in a way that is in keeping with the way of God. Real quick tonight before we run out of time. Obviously, they couldn't undo their action of having crucified Christ, could they? Could they? They couldn't undo that. They'd already done it. Now, God raised him up, we understand that, but they couldn't go back and undo what they had done, right? But what they could do is keep from crucifying him again. What do you mean by that? Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it's impossible in the, uh, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to, what are we talking about? Repentance. To restore them again to repentance since they are doing what? Crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. How were they doing that? Now obviously they weren't doing it literally again. They couldn't do that. He's already ascended back to heaven. But by their wickedness, their sinful life, having left the Lord, they went back to their old ways of doing things. And they were crucifying the Lord again. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, though. Though we speak in this way, now remember, he's just talked about, uh, you know, crucifying the, uh, the Son of God again. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What is it that Peter is telling them to do when he tells them to repent? They've already changed their mind. Now they've got to change their action. What are they to do? What God says. What's right and what's good. That's not hard to understand. That's what he's telling them to do. All right, I think I heard the bell ring. We got to the first part. We've got the train coupling there that we'll pick up next time with the and, and then we'll go forward. He tells them to repent and do something else, and we'll pick that up on next Wednesday night.